Welcome to another episode. Today we have a very special guest and I, I'm sure you will enjoy it. She is a great friend. She's a colleague and an incredible mentor to me in the world of nutrition, Dr. Kathy Science. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. Now, now as I alluded to in the intro, you and I have known each other for a while. I know that you trained under Dr. Kramer. We're going to get a little bit of your um, background, but he was the one who made our first intro. And I'll never forget the kind of story how we started. This was, oh my God, we're losing weight. How do we, how do we maintain, you know, body comp during uh, preseason camp? And, you know, all my fears, you know, were kind of misfounded because you just said, well, just get them on puppy chow and we'll talk about that too. <laughs> later on, but could you just tell people, because again, your story and how you're able to communicate with people is very unique because you haven't had the traditional kind of nutritionist upbringing. You've had a really incredible set of mentors and incredible education that's really helped you as a practitioner. So I'd love it if you could kind of share with the audience kind of your story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So I, um, it's so funny to get to talk on nutrition and sports nutrition. It's certainly the area that I work in working so much right now, but my background and my degrees are in exercise science. And I went to, I did my undergrad at the University of Maryland in kinesiology, and I absolutely loved it. So I'm a big turp at heart, um, even though I'm in Buckeye Nation, but I, I went there and I got to explore the major in a lot of different ways. And in a lot of areas where I gravitated most was not just ex-phys, but exercise physiology, but really the sports medicine areas. And so I've always had that that look on the field of like, how do we get better? How do we maintain health while we're putting our, our body through things that doesn't always emphasize health? And so while I was on that journey, I found out like you can combine exercise and supplements in a really fun way. And that's what took me to grad school um, at the University of Connecticut. And so from my undergrad, I started pursuing my master's at the University of Connecticut under the direction of Dr. Jeff Bolick. And a lot of the world recognizes him as the um, ketogenic and nutritional ketosis expert that he is, but he also does a lot of work in sports supplements. And that's what I was really excited about. Like it's, he's done a ton in creatine in protein supplementation um, and just finding these aspects of nutrition that enhance and can maximize your sport performance. And so that's what I was really excited about. Uh, and during my master's, we got to do some really fun projects focused on nutrition, on, on supplementation. But again, I was coming at it from the exercise science point of view. And through that, I got to meet these unbelievable experts in the field. So that's where I met Dr. Kramer. I met, I had to take, I got the opportunity to take classes with Dr. Um, Carl Marish, Dr. Um, Lawrence Armstrong, like these pioneers in the field that really done so much for how we look at exercise science and how we study exercise physiology. Um, but one thing that really came out during my master's was that you don't just have to stop at supplementation. You can also look at the whole diet when you're studying um, sport, sport performance. And that's what really carried me into my doctorate. So I stayed at the University of Connecticut for my doctorate under Dr. Rolick, and then our entire lab transferred to um, the Ohio State University. And well, a good chunk of the lab transferred there. And so we had some incredible colleagues that, and professors that were still at UConn, uh, but Dr. Rolick, Dr. Marish, and Dr. Kramer all separately had opportunities at Ohio State University in the exercise science department. And so I had the opportunity to go there to finish up my doctorate. And what I've found 
And what I learned in that process was a lot more intensity on the translational aspects of sport performance. So at this point, I was looking at sport performance, habitual diet at multiple layers. And I think that's something really unique from my background. That's something that I really have to be thankful to my mentors for because I was looking at normal physical outcomes. So we're looking at like metabolic aspects, physiological aspects, and performance outcomes that you would get in a traditional exercise setting. But I also was looking at it in a very cellular and molecular um, aspect too. So I was looking at microbiome, I was looking at transcriptome, and I was looking at different parts of muscle physiology. So I just said a lot there, but basically what we were looking at was sport um, energy metabolism and exercise metabolism in a really complex dynamic way. But for me as a student, what that meant is that I could look at it and really try to understand or decipher the mechanisms for the outcomes that we observe, but then also check out the outcomes. So it's super translational. Um, and what that looks like is, you know, a, a particular athlete's going to be on a certain type of a diet. Let's say they're on a high carbohydrate diet or a low carbohydrate diet. We're going to test what that diet looks like in their traditional exercise setting. So let's say they are endurance athletes. We're going to test them through an endurance athlete bout or an endurance bout of exercise. And then we'll look at how their um, metabolism starts to shift depending on the type of diet they're on. We'll look at different physiological markers that start to shift. But then we'll also dig into those cellular changes that are, are really foundational for some of the performance outcomes that we see in elite athletes. And that level of science uh, was unbelievable. It's still, it still is to this day super novel. Um, and it gave me an understanding of exercise science and nutrition that really hit the whole aspect of physiology. And so I absolutely love my doctorate programs. Um, I'm, I made some of my best friends and colleagues, and then I worked with these incredible professors. But when I finished up, I didn't have as much practical experience as I wanted. And I knew that I really wanted to be in a translational setting. I really wanted to be able to understand the, the physiology and the, um, the pathway analyses that we needed for the physical outcomes, and then also be able to share, like, sit down with an individual athlete and say, hey, this workout works, or this is how it'll impact your body, or yes, eat bananas at 10 o'clock because that's, you know, that's the outcome you're going to get. Um, so to be able to hit that whole spectrum. Um, and so after I finished up in my traditional trajectory, I probably would have done a postdoc at a very, a very specialized muscle phys laboratory or very specialized um, sport nutrition laboratory. But instead I went the opposite direction. I went back to school <laughs> for my dietetics. Um, for my dietetic internship. And so I did that through Iowa State University. And so I was, again, like very exercise science through all my degrees. But during my doctorate, I did all my exercise science and all my nutrition coursework and, and several genetic coursework. So I had this really fun matrix um, and I wanted to put that into practice. And so through my dietetic internship, it was, it was the opposite. It was as clinical as you can get. It was in a hospital setting. And it opened up my eyes to how to talk and communicate about nutrition and exercise. You know, how do we bring all this information to the public, to usable information? How do we adapt it to the many different settings that you see in the clinical, um, in a clinical setting? And so it was, it was a lot more personalization. It was a lot more challenging. I mean, I was in a really intense, um, really high standards program. 
And all of a sudden I'm in this clinical setting, having some of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have throughout my, my journey. And it was eye-opening, you know, it turns out people are really struggling with how they understand exercise and nutrition. And so that gave me this completely different perspective than the program did. And uh, it showed me a couple of things. Number one, I don't want to work in hospitals, <laughs> but I'm so thankful for everybody that does uh, because what they're doing day in and day out is incredible. Um, number two, we need to do better communicating this information to the people that are actually going to use it, communicating what exercise and nutrition means. And number three, we have to be very honest in translating current scientific information to usable information. So not just know how to use it, but also be fair in how you translate it and make sure that it's personalized. And so I really missed athletics. That's, that's my home base. And I had the opportunity, um, Dr. Coach Carlisle, he is a very well-known strength coach, really, really respected in the field. Uh, he's been absolutely incredible. He connected me um, with several different people in the field and one of them being um, James Harris, which is who's currently with Cleveland Guardians. And um, James has a really cool background. He's a dietitian, strength coach, but also unbelievable in the leadership realm. And at that point um, was in front office with Cleveland Guardians. And so we started chatting about what a position would look like. And the Guardians actually, initially, I thought they were just going to bring me in to, to do a nutrition talk during spring training, but it ended up being an interview. So I um, I was like the most excited <laughs> and the most ready to go and prepared uh, that I possibly could be. And, and it was amazing. I ended up getting that position. I was with them for, um, for a little bit of time. And that position kind of combined everything that I had been doing. It combined the clinical aspect. It really combined my exercise science background. And then it really made sure that I was able to answer questions on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. So you and I have talked about this quite a bit, that the research setting doesn't prepare you to answer questions directly all the time. It prepares you to understand the information, um, but you're not always comfortable saying yes or no or directing. The clinical setting really prepares you to answer questions for people, uh, but it, it can be challenging to be up to date on what all the emerging evidence is. And so combining those two is a powerhouse. And that's what I got to do with Cleveland Guardians. I mean, it was so much fun, but a lot of work. Um, and you're working with these incredible leaders uh, and coaches in the field and some really fun athletes. And so for the Cleveland Guardians, I got brought in as a nutrition and sports science um, postdoctorate fellowship. And what we did was we built, they had a structure for the nutrition program, but we we built on it. We took that and expanded it and made sure it was a bilingual nutrition program from the rookie league up. And we set the standard principles. We set the, the guidance on how to handle certain things. And I'm, and I'm really proud of that program. You know, it took a lot of great minds to build it. And I got to be on the, the front lines for it. And it was really awesome. And I loved so many aspects of that position, but I really miss research. So in each of these changes, They've all added and had, they've all added to the skill set. I've met incredible people, um, but I continue to sort of build out that portfolio. And, and I was missing the research setting. I was missing teaching. Um, and that's what brought me to Jacksonville University. I had a buddy there, uh, Dr. Dave Hooper, who uh, is a strength conditioning researcher and was doing some awesome things at the, at the university with a great team of people that were already there. And 
he shared that the post was available through my name in the hat and was really excited to, to get an interview and get the opportunity there. And I was there for four years, really focused on the academic side of things, but be, it was a smaller institution, an exercise science program uh, with a lot of su internal support. So our chair, uh, Dr. Jeff Lloyd was incredible and really amazing professors there. And so we got to do some fun research teach some really awesome classes and work with some great students. And the Ohio State University, I just started here in fall 2022. So I'm a newbie here. But the, the reason for the transition was that this offered many of the same things that JU had, just an opportunity to continue expanding the research setting. And so now where I'm sitting, I get to work on the research initiatives that I'm really excited about in exercise and nutrition. I get to teach some some awesome students and some great classes, and I get to work with the university to continue building out um, how we translate this very confusing, um, really fun area into, into things that can help people get bigger, faster, stronger um, in a personalized way. It's like where we're at now. Well, I think again, too, as I mentioned, your experience is what makes you unique. When we talk about, I need an intervention now, I don't need a backstory. I don't need, you know, in the future in six months, like I have an issue now for two weeks, being able to actually give those solutions in any kind of the called the sports performance paradigm. Um, that's a gift. And it's also a challenge because it doesn't help at all to be, yeah, we lost this amount of muscle mass or, you know, we're dehydrated. We want to know the answers now and your ability, as you refer to as the, you know, to be able to translate and transfer is huge. And I think that especially nutrition is probably pretty close to strength and conditioning where there's some really old dogma. There's some things that people just hang their hat on and it's calories in calories out. And well, nope. If I have 2000 calories of donuts and 2000 calories of steak, <laughs> there's a whole lot of stuff. And as you mentioned, that cascade is unique to each individual, but also the training stimulus that goes along with it. Kind of from your perspective, what is the kind of, you know, biggest eye-opening thing that you've seen when you're working with say someone who wants to get in the field of nutrition and they've got all the answers. I'm sure just like the strength coaches make it great. They got it all figured out. What's your kind of biggest point you try to hammer home that you've seen that really makes you think about before you even open your mouth of what to recommend that young coaches need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think, and what a great question. I, I'm going to go with my gut answer on this, on how I, I get asked this question all the time because I see a lot of sport nutritionists or sport dietitians or sport nutrition specialists come from nutrition worlds and strength and conditioning come from strength and conditioning worlds, but you both have the same goal. And so that's where I've had unbelievable experiences that my background truly is a mix of both. And so you understand not just the stimulus, but the energy metabolism associated with both and the synergistic outcomes that come with it. And so I tell all sides of those, like take a nutrition class if you're strength conditioning. And if you are, if you're in sport nutrition, take a strength conditioning class or take an exercise phys class, like please get in the same room together in your class settings so that you can do group projects together. You're on the same page about the material. You're going to look at it from totally distinct lens, but class allows you to have these discussions that it allows you to have the discussion in class before you get to the to the weight room or to the, the team meeting or whatever it may be. And it is awesome to see those talks go. But if you guys haven't taken 
it, these respective classes, then how do you expect to be on the same page? Like from the get-go, you know, it's it's really needed. And I know a lot of programs have that, you know, at least for exercise science, like you will take at least one nutrition class, but take the sport nutrition class, you know, take ergogenic aids and vice versa. I don't know how you can be in sport dietetics and not have exercise phys and exercise metabolism under your belt. It, it's essential. So at least take, like cross cross into each of those areas. That's the biggest and first thing I say. Yeah. And, and when I've worked with you in the past and other kind of professionals that, that got it, you know, figured out, you can ask a question and it's not considered demeaning. It's not questioning your authority. I think a lot of times, especially now in these sports paradigms, those communication channels need to be established and, and then actually used. So when it's, Hey, what do we think about vitamin D? Vitamin D is good. Well, let's just give 1000 IU or 5,000 IU blanket to everybody okay, that's better than none. But then when the strength coach and I say, well, I think, isn't it medically is that like 30 nanograms per milliliter, you start getting into that medically concerning. Then there's research out of Oakland pediatrics that, you know, even for athletes like 40 to 60, but let's just call it not single digits. Like we saw some of our kids that came from sunny places that had had their first winter of heavy training. And then we, you know, again, the, that composite that makes up that athlete profile, you have to work together how do you go about if you're a young coach and we'll say, say you and I are working on a staff right now, you've got your department, I've got mine. What are some of the ways that you would facilitate some of those conversations? And I think, you know, we had Paul Smith on earlier in our podcast and he said, have conversations that aren't always just, there's a crisis now that needs to be <laughs> like set up established meetings. I think his rule was like every week, talk every day, meet every week, but for three months, and that's your over community. Maybe you just sit there and just talk about your dog or talk about what's mm -hmm. going on in life. I think a lot of that is true across not just athletic training, but I think probably work for sports um, nutrition as well. What would you recommend if you were putting together a staff? Yeah, no, I think honestly, the first thing I would do is I would call all the mentors that I have that have led great staffs and I have so many. So that, that would be the first thing I would do. And then I would also... I would, I mean, I like the journal club setting. I think <laughs> I echo the, have some sort of conversation that has nothing to do with the crisis. So those, where the journal club comes in is that you have your like standard evaluation or your standard, um, your standard guidelines that everybody has to follow. So for example, like maybe as soon as you mentioned vitamin D, just the micronutrients in general, like they're crazy. You know, if you're too low on them, it wreaks havoc. But if you're too high on them, it wreaks havoc. Like we can't just be blanketed any of that. Uh, but you have to understand that not just from the nutritional point of view, but from the physiology and exercise outcome point of view. So if you can establish general standards that are based off of emerging evidence and that are evaluated, maybe even on a yearly basis. So for example, where are we on, on just like you said, our primary micronutrients that we need to check in on? Like calcium, iron, B12, vitamin D, just, just to name like my, uh, just your primary um, omega-3s, like those tend to be the main ones that people are checking in athletics. Um, what are our guiding principles for that? And the right people have to be at the table. So we need representation from each of the performance outcomes that are going to be evaluated and things that directly and indirectly impact our competition. And that will include, and then from there, how often are we testing? What are the ranges that we're considering based off of the current standards that are being used? 
and how are we going to handle budgetary considerations around that? Um, those would be my three things that I'd stand on right now. And then also pose that to the group. Like, what are the three or five things that we need to consider for each of these guiding principles? And then stick to it, but also see how it, you know, how it needs to be evaluated, et cetera. But I think those types of conversations, if you've got a directive, then instead of just saying like, we're going to have a journal club every Friday at noon, like, you know, people just kind of waste it. Everybody's so busy, like, no thanks. But if it's going to lead to a productive piece that you now have a stake in because it affects how some of the things you're doing, then you're also now part of the solution. You're now part of building the program into making it better. And so... So that would be, I think that'd be how I'd start to handle some of that. I often find because strength and conditioning is sandwiched right in between the sport coaches and everything else that there's a lot of the last minute panic. We got to do this. We got to do it now. And unfortunately, the closer to medical you get and probably between sports, nutrition and sports, medicine, athletic training, you're, that's your first kind of step in that direction. It can't just be immediately reactionary. And, and so what I've said to some of the strength staff to get frustrated, like, oh. We lose, we get fired. The nutrition, right, right. So I'm freaking out. Some do, yeah. Some do, but just I think in general, the question I've asked is, well, what was your annual meeting? You know, we would have one at the end of the football season. Now we're getting into the off season. What are your resources? And you bring up a great point of like, well, just physically, how many hours do we have? What is the budget? I don't care what the school down the street does. You know, we mm -hmm. don't have a nutrition bar, but those planning meetings, I think, gives everybody a chance to kind of reflect, figure out what their resources are, set some common grounds. And then that's the standards that you hold each other to throughout the course of the year, which seems to be a lot better than they're not listening. I talked to my friend at this school. This is the new hotness. This is what we're doing. And we have to throw everything out. And then now you just have hurt feelings and, and who ultimately suffers is that athlete who actually needed to have that intervention or, or like you said, it was overdone and they did it themselves because they went to the GNC and talked to the expert down the street. <laughs> Yeah, no, they talk, I don't think they're going to GNC, they're going to Instagram, right? Like <laughs> we're going to TikTok and we're going to figure this out. Um, and TikTok gives you a lot of answers in 30 seconds. And so you've got to be better than that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, it's so easy for me to say that without, I think the realistic consideration is one, what's my manpower? How is everybody doing? Like, how's everyone's plate doing before we jump into these meetings? Two, tell us up front what the budget is that we're working in for some of these areas. And when it undoubtedly comes in low, that's where we start to build our case on, okay, this is the issue. This is how much it takes to address it or to be to follow up on it or to be consistent with it. This is why it's important, but you gave us this. So this is what we can do within that. Like this is this is where we're at. That's a really, a really important conversation to have with any of the administration or front office or whoever admin may be. And then also I think something I really I've had to learn, and this is where the guardians are so incredible. Like I wanted everything done yesterday. Like I'd get so frustrated on how slow things move. And then I look back on it and realize actually as an organization, um, they were incredible. Like they weren't moving slow now that I've seen a lot of other settings. And, um, but it takes time, you know, like it's not going to be built. I, I wanted the whole program ready to roll out before preseason and actually I got one meeting in. <laughs> so just realizing 
what are going to be my realistic milestones as a team? You know, what's our team's realistic milestones? Those put things into perspective too. When we start building protocols and we start building best practices and standards we're using, you're in it for the long haul, you know, that, and you're going to move forward a couple steps, uh, but have a lot more steps back in that process. And a lot of people got to check off to make sure that you can do it. So um, that's something that was very different from my grad school experience, being in athletics. Like, yes, you have this great idea. Um, I'm in my sport nutrition, sport performance bubble, but a ton of people have to be okay with us adding in 20 grams of protein after practice. And that, you know, that's just the, I mean, that was your, I'm sure any strength coach's experience, I would think. Yeah. And I think this is a great chance to kind of talk about how, you know, we've said a lot of nice things here, but we've actually done this and worked together. And I want to talk about that kind of case study. So while we, you know, we're working on a project at Yale, the situation was we were looking at lean body mass throughout the course. So we were fortunate enough to have a DEXA program. And one of the things we said was, what could we do to really kind of highlight some of our resources in preseason camp to prevent, you know, the muscle breakdown or just again, let's call it all things hydration and, and recovery. And so we knew that we had to do a better job. We had an opportunity to uh, potentially make shakes because we didn't have a, a smoothie bar or anything like that. I came to you and I, I think of something along the lines of what's the most amount of calories I can give someone that's effective. But then on my side, after you gave me that, I made sure to document both our power output and our body weight changes so that that way I could use that as evidence to say, we should continue this. I think just asking for more money, more resources without having a good story, but then also you need to deliver is, is key. So we did that. We went through, but could you just walk us through? And again, this is what I had mentioned earlier about puppy chow and no, it is not actually dog food. <laughs> One of the administrators had asked me is what are you feeding these individuals? <laughs> smoothie? They just name it puppy chow. Um, we're the bulldogs, but, uh, could you just talk through kind of what that was kind of your thought process? And then if someone was going to implement something similar to it, could you walk through how to go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and just quickly to echo what you said, like you absolutely have to have these measurable outcomes. Like we can't just say we want more money because it's going to be better and trust us on that. Like you need, you're building a case on every single decision that's made. And so when puppy chow, came through the, there was a, a measurable issue like lean body mass that we know has a direct impact on performance outcome, on injury rates, on their sustainability, on athlete development and longevity. I mean, we got a, a couple big things and a lot of other funds going into the program. So we've got some big stakes that we need to address. And so how do you address lean body mass during the season? That's like the million dollar question. And if I was in a classroom setting, it's such a perfect picture, like just increase this, um, increase a little bit more protein and have a few more micronutrients in place. You should be good to go. Uh, but we also have to talk about their sleep schedule, their travel schedule, affordability and accessibility and personalizing it. Not every single athlete needed the same amount of everything. And so Puppy Chow was designed off of, I really love, um, I I make the what I call BLT protein smoothies. BLT protein smoothies have a base, which is your protein, a liquid that can be adjusted to whatever their goals are. So it can be uh, different calorie ranges. That might be water if we're not adding any additional calories. It could be a different type of milk. Um, it might be juice. You know, it, it could be adjusted to whatever that particular athlete needed. 
and then toppings where we adjust calories and nutrients even more. And toppings can range from anything like oats and maybe oil for the guys that need to increase uh, increase weight as well as muscle mass. Or we might be looking at guys that struggle a bit more or gals, you know, athletes that struggle a bit more on their recovery. So we're looking at certain types of fruits and vegetables. Uh, we might be looking at some that struggle with gut health. So we might be looking at yogurts or probiotics. Um, we might be seeing some that are coming back from injury or just kind of have that reoccurring. So we're looking at omega-3s, you know, that's toppings. I gave you a list, I think of some like a longer list of toppings that could be adjusted accordingly. And so puppy chow was a base protein shake that could then be adjusted very easily, quickly to any athlete. So we could scale it to any athletes. And it was also things that you could buy at a Costco if you were traveling in town. Like we had some whey protein or another type of protein, depending on what the athlete consumed, whatever that liquid might be. And I think I gave three options for that. And then each athlete got two to five toppings and it was sort of like a, like a Sunday bar, which they love. They're like, yes, please. I'm just going to make, we just have to make sure that the athletes that's supposed to be, <laughs> they're, they're not taking like four scoops of peanut butter. Cause they do do that. But, um, but it was really good. Cause the, some of the things that you shared is like, not only did we get, we can measure lean muscle mass, we can measure performance outcomes and we can also get subjective markers to say, how are you feeling with this? How's it sitting in your gut? Um, and how are you adjusting the rest of your, like, is it impacting the rest of your, your intake in any capacity? But we also, you rolled that out pretty quickly. Like it wasn't a big lift. You just needed some disposable cups and a blender and it was ready to go. So that part was awesome too. Yeah. And I think if people ever got to witness it, it was an assembly line. Like <laughs> no other. I think at, at the top point, we had something like four or five blenders running we would do 210 cups. And I think, and, and if Bo's listening, he would know better than I would, but it was something <laughs> like 10 to 15 minutes to make 200 solo cups of chow. And one of the things what we figured out to your point about that integration, great. We have all these cups of, of calories. Can't do it before practice because then they'll throw it up. But what about meeting times? And so putting our heads together, working with the sport coach. Yeah. We actually sit in meetings for 45 minutes after practice or, or maybe that they were there at the facility for two or three hours ahead of time and they weren't getting lunch, we found a way to kind of weave these in. And we had either basically two groups. We had the fruit group and we had a chocolate group. And <laughs> both of them would argue with you left and right about who, uh, who whose chow was better. But the main thing that made us happy was that we could see it make an immediate difference. We saw it in the just, you know, they're hungry. They got out of practice and not having to wait 40 minutes or, or not if they were going to class, not eating at all. And so to your point about, something as small as a, a smoothie or a shake can have a much bigger impact than just calories. And, and they saw, it. they said, this isn't easy. I mean, the amount of Costco runs, we had Instacart <laughs> delivery coming up and you know, it's, you know, how many bushels of bananas and how many gallons we should have bought a cow. We went through so much milk and then, you know, having for all the lactose um, athletes and being really smart about it. But I think it was mm -hmm. one of our greatest achievements and then seeing other teams do it. And people say, Oh, those are football shakes. Well, like you said, BLT, you can make it as high calorie as you want, low calorie as you want, but trying to make sure that they understand that this serves a role and make sure that they use it. And then, you know, subsequently go on, um, you know, and use it to its full potential uh, by going to bed early, by making sure they add their hydration or calories throughout the day. So to your point, I think they really enjoy seeing that intent put behind the plan. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think 
you could this i mean a protein it's not like we're revolutionizing anything right it's a protein shake but looking at the pros and cons of making the shake in-house and and so many sport nutrition and sport performance teams do make them in-house but if we have a variety in some of those setting in some of those ingredients especially like stage two and stage three the the liquid and the toppings i mean that was that really made the difference like we could have had pre-made shakes but not everybody needed the same thing and then we also could have had everybody consuming either a chocolate or a vanilla shake but that it just wasn't getting to what the challenges were which was what every athlete struggles with in season like getting fresh whole foods getting nutrient dense options and getting something that's going to meet their particular needs and so some athletes needed to gain weight but some athletes maybe weight wasn't the issue it was just maintaining that lean muscle mass which is so different and so we can't just continue to expect different results from our athletes if we are providing the same approach on our end and just expecting them to adjust it on their end, like they've got to see us provide that example. Yeah. And I think that you hit the the nail on the head with the fact that it's not just gaining weight. I mean, people forget that sometimes in a practice, you could lose five pounds, eight pounds, 10 pounds in a hot day in August under ads and gear. There's just a lot of metabolism going on. And I'd love for you to kind of break that down because I think, you know, as this comes out and people start heading into the summer um, conditioning and training. What are some of the things that you can think about? Because again, going off your physiology background, what are some of the things that people should be aware of that maybe they aren't as it relates to nutritional strategies, as it um, gets into condi- conditioning and kind of tough training situations? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing that comes to mind it's going to be a long-winded answer, but we're going to shorten it. The first thing that comes to mind is that we often think of recovery modalities from a tough workout. Um, well, first, not everybody believes that they need recovery modalities. So for those athletes that feel like, well, actually, I do need to come down and wait, or actually, I am a trying to, I am trying to adjust body composition, so my recovery is going to be like much less. Those are two distinct situations, like recovery from an acute bout of exercise and paying attention to overall body composition goals, like it doesn't negate how much your body needs to recover from. It's basically like consuming whatever nutrients that you need to replenish doesn't now mean, like after exercise doesn't now mean that you're gaining things back or you're adding things. You're just replenishing what was lost, which is needed to recover. It's not necessarily adding on top of. I think that that I get that kind of question from, from athletes quite a bit. The other piece of it is that recovery is 24 hours. It's not immediately post-exercise or just immediately post-exercise. It's 24 hours. So let's say we've got a really hot bout. We're sweating a lot. We've got, maybe you pushed it because you felt good. It was outside. Um, The exertion involved in that particular bout of exercise is not just a 30 minute window of recovery, but I think that's a common misconception that there's sort of this like anabolic window or that there's a recovery window, et cetera. More and more research shows like this is an all day event and sometimes a multi-day event. So now instead of considering your recovery as just immediately post-exercise, consider recovery as everything until your next bout of exercise. And that mindset now has you intentionally approaching nutrition with more um, of a, more of that continuous process. So Yes, we replenish immediately after, but a couple after hours, a couple hours afterwards as well, maybe before bed, you're going to recover. In the morning when you wake up, 
whatever that particular nutritional approach you take is, that's part of recovery. That's still just within that 24 hour window. And even right before your next bout, that's still part of recovery. Like, yes, you're getting ready for the next one, but it's still part of recovery. And so the main things that you're looking to replenish for recovery, or so what's the purpose of recovery? You are trying to build um, better tissue for the tissue that you just use. So you need to repair the tissue you just use and strengthen the tissue that you just use and then replenish all of the nutrients that were required in order to do that exercise. So those are your three things. So we're looking at hydration and electrolytes. We're looking at energy. So we're looking at total calories. And then we're looking at calorie quantity because those are the three, those are the um, nutrients you were using to produce that energy. Uh, and part of that is going to be, of course, emphasizing lean muscle mass and lean tissue because it had to work so hard for you. So if you want to be ready for that next bout, those three things are things you're thinking of the whole rest of the way until the next bout. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about the conversation I had with Dr. Kramer about his uh, Carol squat protocol that he had. Where on Tuesday, <laughs> we hit a six. Four two two four six. I believe it was at 85, 90, 95 for a double, 95 for a double. Backside of the pit, brutal. 45 minutes, just for squat. And then we take Wednesday off, Thursday, come back, squat again for five, yes. five, and three, which was, I believe, like 85, 85, and then uh, two triples at 90. I was like, that's insane. I was <laughs> like, want it. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make sense. And he goes, well, it's just a squat workout over 72 hours. And that was a light bulb moment for me because you couldn't do all that in one day, but that dose, like you said, it's not just that one workout. It's how those two workouts came together, mm -hmm. but if you go and screw up Wednesday or you don't recover from the Tuesday, the, the medicine is the three days. It's mm -hmm. not just that one. And so in some of those advanced protocols, you're absolutely right. The further from your normal baseline, you have to, you train hard, you have to recover harder and you always have to be ahead of that. Um, that training, otherwise you get an injury. That's the whole, the game and knowing when to hit the gas, when to, you know, hit the brakes is um, it's an art and a science, I think. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's true for whatever your physical recovery modalities might be, uh, which are some really cool stuff coming out and also stuff that's been used. Uh, I'm going to do a quick tangent, but I'm teaching a grad level ergogenic aids and there's so much talk about cold exposure. There. There's really cool research coming out, um, but we were talking about the history of ergogenic aids in class, and they've been doing this since the original Olympics, <laughs> the very first one, and like many, many moons ago, uh, they were doing a lot of massage, a lot of cold exposure, or playing around with different temperatures, and nutrition was a big part of a recovery modality. So it's so cool to see how that's evolved, but also the things that work are still the things that work. And so you would look at exercise. I think it's easier to think of exercise or recovery modalities because you have blocks of time to do that. Like, okay, I get, let's say I'm going to take a two day rest in between a certain type of a lift or a workout. So I'm lifting on Monday. My next lift is going to be, let's say Thursday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe I'll do some, something lighter or some sort of accessory to get ready for a heavier lift on Thursday. But when we think of nutrition, it's a continuous event. So it's not always as intentional to think of, oh, my breakfast is still aiding my recovery. Oh, my snack is still aiding my recovery. It, it doesn't have that same terminology to it. And so if we start to think about it more, like this is going to be helping what you just did and prepping you for what you're about to do, that really helps, um, helps the choices and helps you 
have more directive in what you'd like to consume or whatever that outcome is that you're looking for. It's a big step for someone to really get into performance nutrition because how much of nutrition is taboo society, you know, mythology. And even still with the research that we have and the advances we've made, it's crazy to see, you know, oh, I'm going to lean down. I'm just going to have some salad. Well, now you're actually, <laughs> and you've eaten the entire box of donuts at eight o'clock at night. Right. Maybe we tried to up our protein. Maybe we tried to have some fat, but this idea of that everything's fine and then it's not, and then panic and crash. And we see that with the athletes. And that's why I've, I've taken, I don't know, I've taken it as a personal responsibility, especially when working with sport coaches, maybe sport coaches that grew up in a different time to really let the nutritionist or let the performance team kind of handle that because nine times out of 10, I've seen that going gone horribly wrong because typically it's you're out of shape, you're fat or something negative, go fix it. And again, we're back to that TikTok um, dilemma. And so as we go forward, I hope that's something that we can see better integration because as you mentioned, you might lift three times a week, twice a week, four times a week, you eat every day. And so when we think short of maybe sleep in the recovery modalities, that nutrition probably plays the biggest, if not one of the biggest roles in that recovery matrix. And if that's, you know, off by 5%, that could be the difference. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, man, like I can't even hate on social media. It does such a good job and we'll only get better at doing the translational piece that either we're not communicating as well, or it's a different type of relationship. I mean, I, I literally have focus my career on exercise metabolism and someone will send me a random TikTok video and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. It's wrong. Like I know it's wrong, but the way it's presented, it's it's so either convincing or uh, I think something that social media does is it personalizes it really well. Like you get targeted, um, what's it called? Like ads, you get targeted um, guides for what your next video should be based off of what you're searching. But if I go to do a team talk, it's specific to the team, but I might not be hitting those same individual points that a this that the searches are doing. And so that part's really incredible. But but we have to find a way to put out better information or translate that information correctly because there's a lot of things that are really cool in sport nutrition. Uh, that are coming out because there's a lot more integration with performance now. I mean, you're absolutely right. The standards or the the basis of nutrition is and has always been health, like health first. But performance doesn't always see eye to eye with health. Like not everything we're doing is what I would put an individual just looking to get healthier. Like some of these things are being done because we're competing in a particular event. And that's what we're going to focus on. And hopefully I'm not messing you up in that process, but like, is it natural to do some of these things or, you know, it's, it's testing the limits of human performance. Like that's, that's the exciting piece. And we're trying to help support that as much as possible, but, but performance tends to be that focus. Now me and in, in my work, I really try to emphasize health, uh, but health within the paradigm of that competition. And I think I've seen folks on the nutrition world really struggle with that. Like, you've we've got an athlete that needs to make weight and they got to make weight so we need to either be better at our techniques for making weight or get you know that's that's the goal but we can't tell them that it's not healthy to make weight because that's not helping you know that's not going to happen but i do see i do see people really struggle with that 
yeah, I, I, I think of several instances where I was told eating 7,000 calories a day, you know, isn't healthy. Well, <laughs> you did what position, how much are they? They six, 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 eight, you know, are they trying yeah. to maintain their three fifteen that, you know, they're burning off like a flame flamethrower at practice and just, you're struggling to keep them at mass and, you know, being two forty isn't necessarily great. If you're playing say an interior line position and we talk about injury prevention, it there's a global kind of responsibility for that. And so when a nutritionist works with our team or with a, with a client, you know, I'm always encouraged when I hear what position do you play? What level of competition? Because guess what? Smashing into another human at 300 pounds is not normal. <laughs> going for right. a 20 something mile run, ultra marathon, not normal. Right. So right. there's going to be not normal nutritional strategies that mm -hmm. aren't forever, but net net, if this individual has chosen that they want to do this, we owe it to them to optimize them to be in the best situation for success. And, you know, again, it's not forever when you, you graduate or you finish your career. I think those transition programs are, are super important for long-term health. Um, but in the heat of the battle or in the, the middle of competition, you do have to look at it a little bit differently. Yeah, I think, I mean, that ultra, ultra marathon example is absolutely perfect. Like most individuals are not casually running for a hundred miles through the mountains. Like most individuals are not. But when you are, you're going to eat so much different than me, obviously. Um, and not just nutritional strategies, but I think something that, that started to open up my eyes a lot more in the practical setting is it turns out that everybody likes to eat different things. <laughs> So um, not just we, what do you need for performance, but also what do you need just to be able to manage life? I mean, I, I was shocked at how many athletes couldn't consume foods before competition, not because of the upset stomach piece, like they could consume it before practice or before rehearsal. You know, I work with artistic athletes, so before a rehearsal or et cetera, whatever it might be, but they just, they're so nervous or they're so, there's so much going on that they're just not eating. If you are competing three to five times a week and you're not eating for this chunk of hours, I can't expect that we're just going to get everything in immediately post-exercise. I think that's where, where nutrition is such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing. Again, exercise or physical activity or competition, like it's a specific bout. Like it starts here and ends here. Um, and if you're not competing, unless you're training or something, there's that opportunity to step away from it. Many don't uh, if they're in competition, but you can step away, but you're eating all day. You should be at least um, you've been eating since you were born. You're going to, you know, it's, it's not just part of competition. And so the nuances related to performance nutrition and how do you translate that to then just going home for the holidays or um, going on vacation, you know, that shift is so different. Um, and how do you eat on the road? You know, like how do you eat on a school budget or some of the places that for baseball, some of the places that you're landing in, like, it's not like they're going to have a whole foods, like organic ready to go section. Um, you know, like how do we adjust the message to actually match what's needed? And I thought that part was something I learned so much of the guardians and that has served me unbelievably throughout. Yeah, because if you don't provide solutions and you're just saying do this, do that without a, a road roadmap to get there, either A, they fail trying to, you know, not let you down or they come up with a way that actually isn't healthy or they just get general apathy. So I think it's always important to 
provide solutions whenever you're offering standards to someone. Um, uh, one thing I want to talk about tonight is that just specifically, we, we do a lot of studying of force and power here, obviously at Hawken. And one of the things I want to bring up to you was, is that I know I see all these things online, work with different customers. Everyone's talking about Olympic lifts, this, that, the other thing. I remember when we would talk, you know, we talk about what is force? Well, mass times acceleration equal, equals force. I, I often said to people, it's muscle times excited. And so I'm just going to add more muscle. And when we know that we can now measure the amount of twitch that, you know, so in someone's genetic endowment, especially early on, that might be a really easy way to up it. What is that process? And again, if you could kind of give the uh, entry level, just kind of description of that hypertrophy remodeling, but specifically the role that good nutrition or bad nutrition can have in that. Cause we would often add in the month of January, 340, 360 pounds of muscle across the team, 3.7. So almost a pound a week. Um, and again, the older they got, the harder it was, but just in general, we made that a focal point. And, um, I know doc would talk a lot about, you know, all locomotion kind of initiates from that muscle. And so everything else is either trying to efficiency connect together, get synchronized to perform a movement. But when we talk about just the fundamental levels of muscle, I think we all know it, like everyone's talked about it, but what, what is it from a nutritional standpoint? I've just done a great training session there's a bomb that has gone off in the fibers. Where does nutrition play the role? Cause I did find it was interesting. We would often get individuals either the second or third year into the program would see the largest muscle mass gains, not because they were, you know, lifting more, but they finally bought into the nutrition side. They could have a great lift in freshman year and drink alcohol that would cancel it out or they wouldn't have enough calories. So could you kind of just articulate the importance as it relates specifically to adding muscle mass within that kind of force equation? Yes, absolutely. I, I'm going to say the first thing that probably made the difference is also age and their ability to increase the anabolic signal from a cellular point of view. Um, so that would be first and foremost, like there's a physiological response there. And obviously, like, let's just assume the training signal is set up for um, optimal anabolic signaling. So we're going to put all those things in place. And um, and cortisol levels are managed to the point where it's aiding in anabolic signaling, not hindering, you know, we're, this is our perfect setting. But I think age is a big piece that we can't ignore. Um, you are a little bit older and therefore testosterone signal is going to be a little bit higher for the college athlete or for that, that 18 to 22 age group. That signal, especially if you're getting someone at 17, 18, um, that 19, 20, 21, we're really going to see it. They're, they're just maturing. So I mentioned that because athletes get recruited much younger than that. And so you're looking to see what type of um, potential we'll see. And there's a lot of different measurements that the scouts use for that type of prediction, but those gains, um, I also mentioned it because sometimes coaches will come up and be like, well, how do we get this particular top recruit to gain 20 pounds? Um, you know, they need to gain 20 pounds by two weeks from now. And you're thinking, well, I'm, you know, we've got a lot of tools that we can use, but also they're 17. So maybe if you wait till their next birthday, we'll get a little bit more, but that's, uh, so I mentioned that. But once we start to see the, the milieu, if you will, of cellular signals that enhance anabolic signaling and support it on the nutritional side, there's three primary things that I'd stick on um, just talking about it high level. We can obviously get into the nitty gritty. Uh, we want to make sure we get total calories because the total muscle and lean body mass is such a precious tissue. If we think of it as gold, it costs. And so in order to do it, we need the right energy or the right 
um, currency to support that. So we need total calories and total energy is going to matter. If we're too low on calories, you're going to hinder that response because we've got to partition that energy to baseline or, or fundamental processes. And the body's going to always pick brain function over anything else and like maintaining health over adding anything else. So adequate calories, then we need what's called our adequate, adequate essential nutrients. So essential nutrients are total amino acids. So we need to, if we're trying to build tissue, we need to eat tissue. So some sort of building block of amino acids, whether that be a combination of plant-based and animal-based, um, if you're animal-based, or I'm sorry, if you're plant-based, finding the right type of additional support to build out the building blocks that are needed. But the essential nutrients would be your essential amino acids. We've got some fatty acids in there and we've got all our micronutrients. So vitamins and minerals with some of them being key. So that sounds like a lot of things, but we can get all of that in, um, if it's someone that consumes animal protein, like a, a steak with veggies, with maybe like a side salad and some sweet potatoes or something, like you can get all of that in a full meal. And then the last piece of optimal um, anabolic signaling is hydration. They've done some really cool studies on what it looks to be hypohydrated or low in your um, water balance levels, or if you're over in your water balance level, both of those can lead to obviously health concerns. But if we're within the range that our body can handle, um, neither is necessarily supporting anabolic signaling to its peak. We want adequate hydration for that testosterone response. And so calories, the nutrients that are needed, and the fluids that are needed to replenish it. And the reason why is because... Um, as I mentioned before, like your body doesn't just take all that nutrition to the tissue that was just used. You're first going to separate it out to all the essential places in the body. And those are your primary organs, brain function, uh, like um, body temperature, you know, just maintaining homeostasis. And then from there, we'll replenish the tissue that was just used. And so muscle mass is composed of some primary tissues, so amino acids uh, and protein. It's composed of the energy stores within it. So we've got some glycogen stores and we've got some fat stores. And then in order to be able to send signals around, we need certain minerals that are used during that process and certain vitamins that are essential in that process. So those four things are, are part of muscle tissue if we're trying to replenish it. Um, but anabolic signaling or adding on lean muscle mass is not just replenishing the tissue, but also getting a signal to increase that tissue. And so supporting that signal comes from those three things, just, just high level without getting into the nitty gritty. Yeah. I think that's where too, it was so reflective when we start looking at the workout logs is tonnage going up. Are the reps and sets locked? Are we functioning at an intensity um, that's going to, you know, get to some of the bigger motor units? Because again, if you don't train it, it's not going to grow. And I think there's a lot of misinformation right now. And it, it's unfortunate for the younger generation right now to know what is kind of truth, what is marketing, uh, what's mythology and everywhere in between. So I appreciate that you did that. Now we've talked a lot about yeah. the fundamentals and kind of getting the basics right. I know you're always on cutting edge stuff. You're always working on project. What are some of the things, if you look out at five years, you have a crystal ball, five years, 10 years into nutrition and performance, where do you see it headed? And what are some of the things that if you can talk about um, that get you excited from either app sensors or technology that's changing the game? Yes. Um, wait, I'm just going to finish up that answer from the last question for anabolic signaling because I'm stuck. I mean, there's so much cool information, but 
I'd also like to state that I didn't mention like timing of food, macronutrient composition. Um, I didn't necessarily mention how we can start to play around with the diet to support that initial anabolic signaling and then long-term anabolic signaling. So again, just need to emphasize that. We're going to need to make that another podcast. That's going to have to be episode two. It's all going to just be gains for days. That's what we're going to make. Yeah, gains for days. Gains for days. It's on my mind now. Now I'm going to be sending you things throughout the the rest of the week. Like, oh, and this as well. Um, Thyroid health. I mean, we got a couple things on there, but. Uh, to jump into where I'm going to see, well, first off, I hope that I don't, that my crystal ball is wrong because things are changing so quickly and so incredibly that I don't even think I'll be able to see what we're doing in five years, but for sure, at least in the practical setting, um, cause the research setting tends to go above and beyond, but we don't always translate that. Certainly not right away. I think the, the stats right now are, it takes like 10 to 20 years for some of that research to be adapted if it is, um, but in the practical setting of things that are translational, which is a piece that I love working in, I definitely see a lot more openness on diet manip- manipulation and macronutrient manipulation. So I didn't mention this piece, but one of my specialties is manipulating diet and exercise modalities together. Uh, so not just tweaking programming, but really getting into some of those details and then matching it with specific nutritional protocols. Uh, that that's definitely a, a higher level of work. Your your youth, your competitive youth athlete, or even the college athlete, um, or that younger athlete, like you're trying to set the foundation and the basis. You know, we don't we don't need to get too fancy there. But as the athlete continues to develop, and we're looking at different goals, we're now looking at athlete longevity, and we're looking at time of play and competitiveness level, etc. There are so many tactics that we can start to really personalize. And so I see the the modalities being a lot more available for athletes. I mean, the thing is, at least for me, I every single day you're going to get asked by an athlete some random question on some modality that you probably have not even heard of. Like I remember when I started getting asked about carnivore diet, I hadn't really, I didn't know much about it. Um, or when I was exposed to fruitarian diets, like did not know that people competed with that particular approach. And we've got a, I'm not certainly not advertising either of them, but, but the fact that we've got competitive Olympic level athletes that use these two, you know, completely different approaches and they're both on that center stage. And so, um, if you say like, no, that's bad for you, then they'll say, okay, and then continue to do it and just find the information somewhere else. So I think training our younger coaches and our younger sport performance specialists, you know, wherever they are in that paradigm on how to look into that information and provide them use, you know, not brushing them off. I think that'll be a big change. So being more open to different modalities or having a better understanding on how that affects things. And then I think we also include the athlete in conversations very differently. At least for me, you got told what to do and then you did it. And now that's not quite this generation. Like if you tell them what to do, they'll just say, okay, and then still do whatever they want. Uh, And I know that that was happening before, but I think it's even more prevalent now. And so I think that'll really change the sport performance and a lot of really cool research in the mental health space, in the social space for athletics on how to communicate. Where this comes full circle for performance is that I think for performance, absolutely tracking, uh, we need to find our sweet spot of not um, death by data, you know, tracking appropriately and monitoring by appropriately, 
and outcomes that are going to be usable and specific to the athlete and to the coach and to the team as a whole and to the sport. But understanding how to report that and how to have that communication a bit better and how to have um, what's used in the in community research settings like bi-directional engagement. So athletes are just as involved in the process as the performance team because you need buy-in. I, I think the buy-in is even more important now because there's so many pieces to sport performance. You've got meetings for nutrition, they've got strength and conditioning, they've got their training, but then they're also in um, all these other other sectors of performance that we're putting so much more value on and we've seen how important they are. And, and I emphasize the mental health piece because that's just a really growing, um, a really an area that's growing and needs to grow. And a lot of athletes have come out and said, you know, this is my make or break. If this isn't right, then I, I can't really adjust to any of these other things. And so I think the field is gonna get a lot more dynamic and a lot more communicative. If I'm getting specific, I think we're going to see some funkier diets. Um, and I think I've seen already of athletes that aren't as, um, that aren't using supplements as much. I wonder if that wave will come back. It's not, I mean, obviously people are still using it. It's still like a $35 billion industry, but I would say the younger athlete doesn't turn to supplements as they're a bit more cautious to supplements. I think that messaging really hit that generation hard. And so I wonder if that will start to come back, if we'll start to see more supplements in a, in a handful of years as we highlight like the safety and the role that they play. And then I think we'll also start to see a lot more of our um, ladies and, and female athletes and athletes that we didn't traditionally lift with start lifting so much more consistently, which will change some of the exercise or some of the nutrition programs that we match with that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of ownership when someone's into their diet, it shouldn't suck. And I think that that's, what's often associated with when I eat a good diet, it means I don't get to have, you know, sweets. I don't get to have that. And to your point, if you're out training and you have five heavy sessions without the week throughout the week and a cookie on a Friday makes you feel good, then that's not going to be what tips you over. And just the kind of opportunity to make it their own. You mentioned in that uh, explanation a little bit, the um, getting the buy-in and that autonomy at what do you like? And, oh, you like this? Well, how about that? And the number of times I would find individuals that actually took pride in making their pre-lift meal, making their post-lift meal. There is something to that from a control. And I think you're right about nutrition is very closely tied to mental health, just because again, if you don't eat well, um, the brain function definitely suffers and, and whether it's anxiety or cognitive decline or any of these kind of things, I do, I think that's spot on. And I could even see them, you know, just by the nature of nu nutrition, where you're sitting talking about things are going to come up in life and in those conversations. And so for the practitioners just to be prepared for it and not that you have to necessarily be a clinical psychologist, just understand that that's a role where you're going to have to be empathetic and be prepared to say, Hey, why don't you go talk to somebody? Cause you will be on that front line of overall care of uh, athlete standard of care. So I think that's spot on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's so much work being done in microbiome with exercise. I mean, it, that's a really, we're starting to explore those areas more, at least I'm being involved in those areas a lot more, but where microbiome fits, not just for exercise or for nutrition modalities, but in an athletic setting where we've got to look at both together and the microbiome aspects on cognitive function. And of course, that's going to extend into a lot of other, a lot of areas. And so 
that dynamic teamwork approach. Like it's not just that the the strength conditioning team is building a program and I am in the silo providing a, a dietary prescription. Like, no, I'll, it has to be so much more team, team-based work. And we see that so much in the professional setting because that's your focus. And in the college settings, um, I hope that that's starting to come out a lot more. I know there are some programs that are doing it exceptionally well, but not every program is doing that. And not every program has the, man, the manpower to do that. You know, we need to also identify like, this takes so much work. Um, you can't just have one RD for this many sports. You know, like you, you can't have two strength coaches for this many sports and then expect those three people to completely maximize the culture. Like it, it's going to take a team and effort and resources. Absolutely. Well, I could continue to talk to you about this stuff all day long. I know a lot of our listeners want to reach out and ask questions. What's the best way for someone to get a hold of you and, and kind of uh, ask some more questions if they have any. Oh my gosh. I'd be so excited if they did. Um, they can email my OSU email. It's sign. So S A E N Z dot one, one at OSU.edu. And I hope people do. I'd love to have more conversations. I'd love to meet people in the field. Um, and people are doing some really awesome stuff so we can bounce off ideas. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.